how people without power can make their voices heard and create radical change in America. And since the status quo is often maintained by violence and has a violent response to these efforts, I wanted to look into the necessity of responsive violence in enacting social change. Seeing how peaceful protests against the violence of police brutality are met with the further brutality of police and riot gear, these are the questions that I have. And looking back into history, I was drawn to the stories of the black abolitionists because talk about powerless. Being free and black during slavery in America did not mean much. It did not give you much more societal value than being a slave. And because of that, free black people who fought not only to end slavery, but to be seen as equals, met with a lot of violence in their efforts. And they had to ask and consider the hard questions of responding to violence with violence to protect themselves. This isn't typically how the abolitionist movement is discussed. Black abolitionists, in their role at the beginning and in the center of the movement, is typically ignored. The narrative against slavery typically starts around the 1830s with the anti-slavery society founded by William Lloyd Garrison, whose chief method of fighting to end slavery was something called moral suasion, or the idea of convincing people that slavery was morally incorrect, and that's why it should end. But again, this ignores the black abolitionists whose lives and bodies were on the line every day fighting to end slavery and be equals. It ignores how truly powerless Americans forced themselves to be heard and led the charge towards the Civil War. And this is why today I'm talking to Professor Kelly Carter-Jackson. She's a super cool NAFL assistant professor in the Africana Studies Department at Wesley College with a very long bio of the awards she's done and the stuff that she's written. But what we're focusing on today is her book that came out last year called Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, which itself is an award-winning book. It's got the James H. Brosser Best First Book Prize. It's on the Washington Post list of 13 books to read on African-American history, and it's currently being considered as a finalist for... Frederick Douglass book prize. So yeah, very legit book. And this book seeks to center black abolitionists in the abolitionist movement because they were there, they were important, they sought different ends of the abolitionist movement, and they used different means. So professor, let's start at the true beginning of the abolitionist movement with black people. Okay, let me just start by saying this. <laughs> One of my favorite historians is Benjamin Quarles, and Benjamin Quarles wrote a lot of the early, mid-20th century African-American history that we know. And he had a book called Black Abolitionists. And, uh, and one of the main arguments of the book is that Black abolitionists are the first abolitionists. And I was like, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> like, it's basically like no one needed to tell enslaved people that slavery was wrong. You know, nobody needed to sort of recruit them into a movement. Like, they had been resisting slavery from the moment they were enslaved. And I was like, absolutely. I feel like what he was saying was so simplistic and, and sort of obvious, but at the same time needed to be reiterated because we had really lost focus, I felt like, within the historiography of like who should be at the center and who's really leading this movement and, and what's at the forefront of it. And so I focus on Black abolitionists because I think they're the first abolitionists. I focus on Black abolitionists because I think they created the, the template or the blueprint 
for how we understand social and political activism and, and where it goes from there. I think when we look at any other movement going forward, everyone sort of refers back to their strategy and tactics. And then I also think that Black abolitionists were invested in emancipation and equality. And that's like so important. I think that a lot of white abolitionists believe that slavery was wrong, but they didn't necessarily believe that Black people were equal or that Black people should vote or should marry their daughters or should go to school with their children or, you know, like all of these things are like, hold up, that they are people. <laughs> My college professor said that white abolitionists approached slavery like a free the whales campaign. So it's like, free the whales, don't hurt the whales. But, you know, whales can't vote and whales can't read. And, you know, whales, whales aren't humans. You know, like there's a fine line for, for what they wanted. I think there are a few exceptions to that. You know, John Brown is certainly an exception to that. That. Something like Wendell Phillips is an exception to that, and other radical white abolitionists. But yeah, it was important to me to center their story, and it was important for me to let people know that this is a twofold mission. This is not just about the end of slavery, this is also about equality, and in that if you don't accomplish both goals, you only have but half an abolition. And I think that's the world we're living in today is half an abolition. We're free from slavery, technically, legally. But that equality part, we've not yet achieved. Yeah, that's something I really appreciate about your book is the fact that it separates the two struggles, that there were white abolitionists, but they were not working for the same goals as black abolitionists, which is one of the big reasons why their tactics differed. You were talking about how the way that we typically think about like the abolitionist movement is a nonviolent white movement, but that wasn't working for black abolitionists, so they had to approach it differently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like in the book, I say that if moral suasion was the house that William Lloyd Garrison built, like black people are merely renters, like they don't own (laughs) these ideas. And, And I think that's important because, yeah, they had buying. Yes, they were invested. They had someone like William Lloyd Garrison who was willing to advocate for their cause. But when they when it came to being attacked by a mob or having their businesses destroyed or their children killed or their children's school destroyed or when they're facing down the barrel of a gun and a slave catcher, best believe black people are not thinking about moral suasion and turning the other cheek and and not returning violence for violence. And I think that idea kind of works. Moral suasion being that you can morally persuade people that slavery is wrong, that slavery is a sin. That works in the 1830s. I shouldn't say worked. It is intellectually effective because there is this second great awakening, this religious revival where people believe that Christ is coming back. He might come back tomorrow, get your affairs in order, that kind of thing. But when that doesn't happen and you get into the 1840s and certainly the 1850s, the idea of moral suasion just holds no water. It reached its limits. And people found that it was not nearly as effective as protective violence and self-defense. And so those are the tactics that Black abolitionists really started to push as we get closer to what becomes the Civil War. Their ability to defend themselves, men and women, is remarkable. And I think it changed the game. I think it actually accelerated the oncoming of the Civil War. If we see the Civil War as something that was like inevitable, Although historians say nothing's inevitable. But if we see it as something that's like a boiling pot, Black abolitionists absolutely increase that temperature. It makes sense that like moral suasion would not be the way to go. There was a power structure 
in place that benefited white people to see black people as non-human so just saying mm-hmm. maybe that's wrong doesn't it was like a threat to power to end slavery and push for black equality so it makes sense that just saying hey this is wrong would not be the solution so feels <laughs> <laughs> woefully inadequate like even, and the thing is even slaveholders would acknowledge you know what this is kind of messed up but i'm making money or but this is my livelihood the rationale that black abolitionists adopted was that slavery starts in violence slavery is sustained by violence so slavery will only be overthrown by violence and that makes complete sense to me yeah makes sense to me too (laughs) (laughs) oh in your book one of the like huge turning points in the black abolitionist turn towards violence is the fugitive slave law which I guess that was just kind of a turning point for abolitionist movements in general, because it kind of showed that after like 20 years of the white abolitionist movement, not much had got, like nothing had gotten better. Things had actually gotten worse. Think about, and this is what I think about when I think about the Black Lives Matter movement, is that we're about six, maybe seven years into the Black Lives Matter movement. Imagine being 20 years, 30 years into the movement and you had not seen anything change, and you had seen no new piece of legislation that benefited Black lives. That's what was happening in the abolitionist movement. They had been in this game for 20 plus years, and no new legislation had impacted the abolitionist movement. If anything, slavery had expanded westward. Slavery had gotten bigger. You've got 4 million people now enslaved. You have intense battles, physical and political, over which state is going to enter the union, a free state or a slave state, and who's going to have control. Are we going to be a country with slaves, or are we going to be a slave country, a country that is dominated by slavery? I think we've we've always been the latter. We've always sort of been a slave country. I think that is how America gets founded. We're not just a country that happens to have slaves. But I think that when you think about you know, 1850s and the Fugitive Slave Law, it's such a turning point because it basically made slavery a national issue in the sense that if slavery was geographically contained to the South and you run away as an enslaved person, and then the Fugitive Slave Law basically says, okay, now if you run away to Pennsylvania, to New York, to Boston, I have the ability as a U.S. Marshal or as a planter to send someone in to catch you and to send you back. And not only can I like come into Boston and kidnap you and send you back into slavery, but if I'm a U.S. Marshal and I see a white person there, I can deputize them on the spot and I can say, see that? That's Tom. Help me get Tom. And if you refuse, you can face a $1,000 fine, six months in jail. So the North, white Northerners essentially become like de facto employees of the South, helping to retrieve their property and bring it back to them. And so the Fugitive Slave Law is definitely a game changer for for the lives of Black people, because even if you were born free, you were still susceptible to being kidnapped, whether you showed papers or not, because your word means nothing. You can't testify, you can't serve on a jury, you can't be your own witness. Only white people can say, oh, no, no, that's that's Tom. He's good. He's free. He he works for me. But if you didn't have white people who were going to go to bat for you, and a lot, of, a lot of people did not, then you were going to get sent to the South, the deep South, most likely. And so, I mean, that's the story of Solomon Northrup. What's so remarkable is that he actually 
get sent back home. But thousands of people were kidnapped and sent to the South. So yeah, it's a real game changer. And I think for the first time, Black abolitionists have two choices in front of them. And what I say is flight or fight, meaning they can flee and go to Canada, which is ugly the new Mason-Dixon line, or they can stay and, and duke it out and fight it out. And a lot of people leave. A lot of people are like, hey, I'm in Canada. <laughs> like, I'm out. Or I'm in England. I'm out. Tell me when this settles. You know what I mean? But a lot of people are like, uh, where can we get some guns? Let's develop Black self-protection societies. Let's create our own police force. Let's have a way to protect ourselves from these U.S. Marshals and slave catchers that are wreaking havoc on our community. And that makes sense. If you were like, I got my own freedom. I like ran up here. This is where I'm supposed to be living. And then suddenly it's like, nope, you're not safe. It makes sense that you get a gun and you're like, come get me if you want to come get me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And make it and make it the deadliest catch. Mm -hmm. Right. Make it so that slave catchers have something to lose in pursuing you because you have everything to lose saying going back to saving. So the idea that this was a deadly enterprise is very real. Someone is going to die before I go back to slavery, if at all possible. And so, yeah, the stories that just come out of that moment are incredibly intense and heroic and courageous. And I couldn't imagine being put in that situation, certainly not with children, But that's what Black people were living with, whether they were born free or fugitive or had lived longer in freedom than in slavery. It it didn't really matter. There's something in your book where you talk about like violence as a last resort. And I understand that because it's like you either do something, like you either protect yourself with deadly force or you are back in slavery. So it makes sense. It's like it wasn't just as if Black abolitionists were like, let's go kill a bunch of white people. It was like, it's my freedom. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. This is a the very, and I have to make that clear because I think that we don't understand in a, in a historical sense and even in a contemporary sense that even when we talk about violence and riots and all of this stuff, violence primarily flows in one direction and that is from white hands to black bodies. Like there is not, point to me somewhere in history where you see black people going into white churches, shooting up white people, and then going to Burger King and living to tell about it. You never hear that. You never hear a story about a Black mother driving her son up to Kenosha, Wisconsin to shoot up some protesters. Like, you never hear these stories because Black people don't do this. Like, you know, like this, this violence almost always goes in one direction. Sure, there may be the outliers, you know what I mean? But for the most part, Black people are having to protect themselves. They're not going into white communities and and shooting at white people or slitting their masters' throats. Like these rebellions, even the rebellions that we see in the South are somewhat anomalies in the sense that it's incredibly hard to do that and be successful. And so I think it's, it's worth stating that like, Yes, people are using violence. Yes, people are killing slave catchers. But you have to understand that if they were to have been enslaved and sent to the South, that's a social death. They're dead already. Their life expectancy drastically shorter because of the fact that they are enslaved. Their life expectancy, as a matter of fact, is tied to the market so that when cotton prices are high, you, you don't live as long. When cotton prices are low, you might get a reprieve. I don't think we realize how violent the institution of slavery was and how violence was required in order to to combat it. And so, yeah, there's a story I tell about John Anderson and he talks about how he 
escape from slavery. And he says he was escaping slavery and there was a, a man who was pursuing him. And he basically told the man, hey, stop following me. And the guy kept following him, kept following him. He was like, hey, if you don't stop following me, I'm going to kill you. And the, the guy followed him for like three more hours. And so he turned around, stood his ground, killed the man, and then made his way to Canada. <laughs> and like, he tells this story, you know, with great regret and grief and all of this. And the audience is like cheering, like, hey, hey, you did right. Yeah. You know, like they're loving it. And then the chair of the um, of the conference or, or gathering is sort of like, does this friend look like a murderer? And they're like, no, no. And, and it's just so remarkable how they're like, you did not commit murder. You did not do anything wrong. And not only did you not do anything wrong, because he, he questions whether he can now be a Christian because he's killed someone. And they're like, what you did was a godly act. You used your natural God-given right to defend yourself. And so, no, you're, you're not a murderer. And yes, you are absolutely a Christian. And that's a completely different way of looking at it. But the fact that this audience was sort of like aroused by the fact that he used murder to protect himself and they were empowered by that. It's just, you know, it's remarkable to me. It's remarkable. Yeah, that is remarkable. Also, in your book, there's, we're talking about like violence and Black abolitionists, but you had, you talk about it being a strategy also for Black abolition. Can we talk a little more about that? Yeah, so I, I talk about violence as a political language. I talk about protective violence and this idea that basically the question I'm really putting out there is how should oppressed people respond to their oppression? How do the powerless procure power? How should the state respond to national dissent? What's the responsibility of the state? And, and what should you do when you don't have traditional channels? You don't have the vote. You don't even have citizenship. Dred Scott basically said, you have no rights, which a white man is bound to respect. So if you don't have any of those things, how do you advocate for yourself? And so what I look at with Black abolitionists and their strategy is how do they employ violence as a tool, as a language, as a weapon to communicate their grievances and to communicate their humanity in ways that people will listen. And so I think there's a lot of ways that Black abolitionists do this. They speak out. They're constantly on the lecture circuit. They're constantly letting people know about the evils of slavery. They write. You know, the, the community around them has an insatiable appetite for, for slave narratives and literature. They're reading as much as they can. They use the press. I mean, the power of the pen in the 19th century is so unique in the same way that we think about Twitter as this galvanizing tool that everyone's consuming and reading. That is what the written word or the press was for Black people. They had their own newspapers. They wrote in white newspapers. And they really did an incredible amount of work in terms of like advocacy and information with their newspapers. But then they also created their own Black vigilante societies and Black self-protection societies. And so there are layers of ways in which they're using every tool in their, in their arsenal and their, in their tool belts to advocate the, the end of slavery and to bring about a more sort of full humanity for their lives. And so the book really is meant to highlight the various ways that they do that, be it, um, and that all these tools are equally, you know, powerful. It's not just about killing someone. Yes, that's powerful. 
but so was the speech. You know what I mean? Like, so sometimes these speeches are fighting words. I mean, Charles Sumner, we saw that he gives a speech and then he almost loses his life, you know, based off this radical, controversial speech. So, you know, all, all of that matters in the same way that we see BLM today using multiple tactics to get people to pay attention is what's necessary. Yeah. Oh, another thing that you talk about in the book is the way that Black abolitionists, one, they like brought us close. They definitely made the Civil War even more inevitable than it already was. And they expected war to be the method that they would have to use to get freedom. Yeah, yeah, they did. In some ways, they're like the prophets of their time because they almost predict the Civil War. They're like, oh, there's a reckoning coming. Oh, y'all are all going to die. <laughs> I mean, there's some, like, I didn't include it, but there's some really powerful, like, uh, letters of enslaved women and, and former slaves that talk about the Civil War as this, like, oh, the Lord was coming for you. This was his vengeance and wrath. Like, I mean, and when you think about the fact that the Civil War is the bloodiest war that we have ever had in American history, out of all the casualties of all the wars we've ever fought, they don't come close to the amount of people that died during the Civil War. About 2% of the population dies. That means everyone knows someone or knows someone who knows someone who died. We're talking about, gosh, over 750,000 people losing their life. I mean, that's a lot of people and a much smaller U.S. population as well. So yeah, I think that Black abolitionists are very much aware that this institution is going to cost you something. And we just don't mean your property. We mean your life, your livelihood, your your kinship, your relationships with other people. It's a very, very violent war. And Frederick Douglass says something I think that's really profound. He says, you know, the Americans learned more through the force of events. The Americans learned more in four years of fighting than they did in 40 years of peace. Like more in four years of fighting than they did in 40 years of peace. And I think that's remarkable because he's what he's saying is like, listen, we we tried to do this nice. <laughs> we tried, we tried to use moral suasion. We tried to get you to make the right decision and you didn't. And now you, you're faced with a war. And this is the outcome when you refuse to relinquish your enslaved people. And also when you refuse to relinquish just white supremacy in general. So yeah, I think it's it's powerful what they foresaw with with the Civil War. Really, really powerful. Yeah, it is. Oh, there was a quote in your book that really got me, where you were talking about how like Martin Luther King said that the riot is the language of the unheard, but revolution is the language of the empowered. That that quote yes. got me. True. <laughs> <laughs> it's true I mean I think that riots are are I hate to say this because it trivializes it I don't want to call it a temper tantrum but in the in the way that like when you are not heard when no one's listening to you and you like I don't know, you pick up a glass and you throw it down you listening now you know like it's a way to draw attention to to a grievance, to be heard. And I think that uh, when we see riots, we think of them as these very like quick, rage-filled, sort of impulsive engagements. But I think that revolution is slow and it is always very violent. It's very methodical. It doesn't just happen, right? Revolution is made up of people who are empowered, who know exactly what they want, when they want it, how they want it, what they want the world to look like. 
and they go about doing that work. And so I do think you can't have a revolution without violence. I, I do think you can't have a revolution. Certainly you cannot have a revolution without forfeiture. That's just, that's required. Something has got to change. Something has got to be relinquished. And that's the hard work that people are engaged in now is trying to get people to relinquish or forfeit their white privilege, their white supremacy, to create a better world that's equitable for everyone. And so when people engage in that work, they're doing it from a place of empowerment. They're doing it from, from a place of innate humanity. I know what I am entitled to as a person. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, justice, clean water, a good education, access to jobs. Those are basic, basic things. So yeah, I think we're, uh, in some ways, we're constantly involved in revolution. <laughs> oh, and I guess that's a good way to just segue into how do you see the strategies and methods of Black abolitionists? You talk a lot about their philosophy and how it has to, and how it has been reflected through kind of just American protests since then. So how do you see it reflected in right now? What can we learn from the Black abolitionists? Man, I think we can learn a lot. I think one of the things that people don't understand about Black abolitionists is that Black women were at the helm of it. They were at the helm of it. They did all the legwork, all the groundwork, all of the support and the advocacy. I think, you know, the, the sexy part of the abolitionist movement is like the Frederick Douglass, Henry Highland Garnett, and like your Jermaine Logans or Lewis Haydens. These are Black abolitionists that people maybe are more familiar with. And people know Harriet Tubman and people know Sojourner Truth, but the women, the wives, the mothers, those were the ones that really had faced the brunt of, of violence from slavery, not just the physical labor of slavery, but the reproductive labor, their wombs were um, held hostage, their children were stolen from them. And I think as a, as a mother, that's a particularly acute grievance. It's not to say that fathers don't care about the theft of their children. They absolutely do. But for women, it's a, it's a physical theft. It's, a, it's so deep. And so when I think about the movement today and how the civil rights movement is really led and run by, by Black women. So if you think about the Montgomery bus boycott, that was all domestic workers. That was Joanne Robinson. That was all Rosa Parks and Claudette Cloven. These are Black women. I think about Daisy Bates in the, in the Little Rike Nine. She, and she also ran her own newspaper. Ida B. Wells, um, Mary Church Terrell, and Julia Cooper. Women were at the helm of this. And then even, you know, you think about the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it's started by three queer Black women. And you think about this past election and the work of Stacey Abrams and her entire team and Kamala Harris and like what that represents, what she represents. I don't think it's possible to make a movement without putting women at the center and Black women in leadership. I just don't think that's possible. You don't get success without Black women. You don't get like movement building without women. And I think this is because unlike men, women, women don't need the center stage. Like it's like, just get the work done. <laughs> I, I don't want to be on your magazine cover. I don't need to be your hashtag. Like just do the work. 
And so oftentimes that means we don't know their names or we don't get to see them. But the lessons of that, I just think are, are really valuable. And I think it's frustrating for people now because they're so used to these male-centered movements that when it comes to like BLM and things like that, people are like, hey, hey, take me to your leader. Take me to your Frederick Douglass. Take me to your Du Bois or Martin Luther King. And it's like, no, 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 you need to deal with the people, <laughs> the people, that is who you have to negotiate with. And, and people, people don't want to do that. <laughs> They're like, no, your guy needs my guy. We go in the room and negotiate. There will be no negotiations, only forfeitures. <laughs> and that is, and that is what I love about how the abolitionist movement, they weren't called the reformist. They didn't reform slavery. They abolished it. You know what I mean? And that is, that is what's so incredible about what, what they did. It was incredible. Now, before you have to go, I know you just said that we don't know a lot of the names and stories of Black women abolitionists, but can you tell us a little bit about one of the few that we do know of? I have a lot of good stories. I will tell a story about, uh, I love this story about Amelia Robinson. So Amelia Robinson as a black woman, a widow living in her 50s. And she writes into the Daily Creole, this black newspaper in Louisiana that debuted maybe one month before Charles Sumner's beating. So a little, a little context, Charles Sumner is a white radical abolitionist who gives this incendiary speech about slavery and basically starts calling folks out and saying like, oh, you love slavery. You love slavery because she's your, she's your harlot, right? And he's like using all this sexual imagery to talk about like how planners are sleeping with their slaves and, and all of this stuff that people prefer not to talk about, certainly not in public, let alone in private. And anyways, Charles Sumner, because of his speech, gets beat within each of his life. He gets caned by Preston Brooks, who basically says, I heard your speech and it's liable and I won't stand for it. And, and he beats him in his Senate chamber. Charles Sumner can't really do anything. He hides under his desk. His desk is bolted to the ground. And so it's like a holding pin. And Preston Brooks continues to beat him basically until his cane breaks. And Amelia Robinson, this becomes national news because it happens in the Senate chamber. And so it's not like this was like some sort of street fight or bar fight. This is in the Senate chamber. And so it's national news. Amelia Robinson reads about this and she calls Preston Brooks a coward. She calls him a cringing puppy. She says she would meet him any place with pistols, rifles, or cowhides. She said she would choke him out. And then she says, because, you know, Charles Sumner wasn't able to defend himself, she says, you're afraid to meet a man. Dare you meet a woman? And I'm like, oh! <laughs> but I'm like, this is remarkable because it's not like Robinson was like writing to her girlfriend. Oh, I'm so upset about this incident. She was like, let me pin this op-ed. Let me put it in the paper. Let me tell you exactly how I feel. Like this is a challenge, a challenge to you, Mr. Brooks. And I think that was actually the title of the op-ed was like a challenge to Mr. Brooks. And I just love it. It's just so unapologetic and it's so forceful and courageous. And, and I, I have no doubt that she meant what, what she said. And given the opportunity, her 50-year-old 50 year old self would have no doubt said like, all right, Breast, Preston, let's do this. <laughs> like, um, you know, that to me is just like, it's, it's wild. When you find those things in the archives, it's just like, it's gold. 
you know, it's gold. You're like, oh my gosh, it's exactly what I was talking about. That by far is one of my favorite stories. I wish I knew more about her. All I can get is sort of like what she includes in the article, but it, it's amazing. And if there was more on her, there should be a book. <laughs> Just based on that, I've been alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing. It's amazing. That was, that's such a good conclusion. Oh, that, that was perfect. Thank you so much. Oh, great. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> we live in the reality of only half an abolition. Slavery, as the abolitionists knew it, is over, but racial equality. The fight for that is not over, and that's the fight that needs to continue. These abolitionists show us that it's not an easy fight. Power structures don't generally want to change, but they did leave us a blueprint. If you want to learn more about Black abolitionists, buy Professor Jackson's book. Like I said, it's up for the Frederick Douglass Award, and it's, it's a good book, y'all. There's a link in the show notes. Go get it. Go read it. And if you like this show this episode or this show, share it. Tell people you know. Subscribe, like us on Facebook, drop a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. All power to all people, y'all.